Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 39 of Daffy's Roundtable. For today's episode, I have Dr. Alec Brown joining me to tell us his experience as a reptile vet and teach us how we can be better at our husbandry and hopefully reduce the need for vet visits. We discuss common cases seen in reptiles and what causes them, as well as the problem with reptile supplements and when UVB use is needed. But before we do that, allow me to give a huge thank you to the show sponsor, Exoterra, for sponsoring the show and making this episode possible. Exoterra makes quality products for our pet reptiles to make them feel at home. Okay, let's get into it. Everybody, please help me welcome Dr. Alec Brown. Dr. Alec, hello. Hi, how's it going? Good, how are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much for coming on, first of all. Oh, it's my pleasure. Um, I'm very, very excited to do this. I have a lot of questions for you, as yeah. I think naturally any reptile keeper would. Um, I also uh, asked a couple of the followers um, for some questions, and I got some some pretty good ones. So we'll throw them in there somewhere as well. And uh, yeah, should we should we jump in? Yeah, sounds good. Thanks for having me. Of course. I'm, as I said, I'm, I'm super excited to do this. Um, cool. So before we, of course, my notes won't won't co uh, cooperate with me but before we get into um all the, the vet stuff uh what yeah. is the dr alec brown story how did you get into yeah. keeping animals and how did you end up being a vet i mean it's a pretty classic story i imagine very similar to a lot of the people on the podcast or in the reptile hobby for long term started out as a kid going around looking for native herps and grew up in eastern ontario i guess fairly similar to where you are Badawa area belleville Okay. catching snakes and frogs and things like that. And then progressed. I was seeing them outside a lot, wanted to see them more often. So finally convinced my parents that I could take one in for a little while. That was a gray tree frog named Sticky Feet. I had him for, I think it was the winter. He was a male, so he called all the time. I have no idea how my parents allowed him to stay in the house. And then it just kind of spiraled from there. I got some snakes and anoles in the beginning because they were pretty easy to care for that kind of thing bearded dragons leopard geckos and a bunch of stuff from there awesome so it all started with sticky feet yeah i'll start <laughs> with sticky feet <laughs> awesome i love the name uh perfect okay and then um were you always planning to uh be a vet or did that sort of come later on yeah it's kind of up and down i mean i liked science a lot and i liked the healthcare field a lot in high school, I guess, thinking about it. And so a vet was an obvious decision. But at that point, I didn't really know if I could do it. Because you hear a lot about how competitive it is. But I thought, well, even if I, I can't get into vet school, I'll stream into that kind of major in a university and see where things go. I ended up in the agricultural cluster. My major was animal bio. I did not know what I was getting into. I was surrounded by what we call the Aggies, where they were just like, they grew up on farms raising cows and stuff like that. I had zero interest or experience in it. And then on the first day we went through and everybody was saying why they were there and what they wanted to do. And every single person wanted to be a vet. I was like, oh my goodness, this is going to be difficult. But again, I continued on. And thankfully, I think my high school teachers really helped a lot. And I was able to attain the grades and get into the vet school eventually. So it was always the plan, but I had a couple of other backups, like maybe looking into research, a master's, a PhD, that kind of thing. And was it, I want to be a vet or I want to be an exotic vet? Or did that yeah. also come later? <laughs> I mean, kind of going with the theme of I'll take what I can get. The idea was always to be a reptile vet in my perfect world, but I didn't know, one, if I could get in, and then two, if there would be enough reptile owners to support that kind of career. How many people have reptiles and how many people want to take them to the vet could I support myself on that kind of thing? It seems to be a lot easier than I expected. There is at least a market, and every year I'm seeing more and more reptiles as a percentage. That's really good. And do you think that the percentage of reptile owners that are taking their reptiles to the vet is increasing, or do you think the percentage yeah. of reptile owners in general is increasing? I think probably both. Both? Okay. While everybody's kind of getting squished into smaller spaces in bigger cities, I think more people are having smaller pets that they can keep indoors. We're also breeding more reptiles, so there's a lot more information about them. So it's easier to keep them with all the information that we have. And then people are more likely to take them to the vet as well, especially during the 
more major restrictions of the pandemic. I think people had more time at home, so they were spending them with reptiles or other pets. They were also noticing when things were wrong a bit earlier. If you're at work all day, you come home, you're maybe not paying as much attention to your snake in the cage. But if you're looking at it for eight hours a day, sitting at your computer working from home, it's a lot easier to say, oh, he's opening his mouth a bit more than usual. Maybe there's wheezing. So more people keeping pets, more people noticing what's wrong, means more people bringing them into the clinic to see me. Awesome. That's, yeah, that's, that's, that's very cool. Um, is it, um, this question, are you still seeing uh, dogs and cats and other animals or is you, are you strictly yeah. seeing reptiles now? I would say it's probably around 50-50 in general between exotics and then dogs and cats. I do a fair amount of emergency hours as well. Thankfully, there aren't very many reptile emergencies. But, so in those cases, it's mostly dogs and cats. But I do see birds and rabbits and other things like that too. Awesome. Yeah, when I was doing um, just, you know, a little bit of research on, yeah. on like find questions to ask you, I saw a post of you. Um, I had stayed up all night for a, a pregnant chihuahua and you, you got the, the puppies out and, and it was, the oh, picture yeah. was really good, all the puppies in your hands. Yeah, <laughs> um, so that, yeah. that's very cool that you're doing that kind of do stuff. do a lot of C-sections in the middle of the night. They unfortunately don't like to give birth in the day, it seems. Yeah, all of them want to work at night. All of them yeah. want to go at night. Yeah. What are some of the most common cases you're seeing? I mean, the classic presenting status is is a bit quieter. They're not really moving around as much. They're eating less or eating not at all, and maybe just sleeping through the day. So unfortunately, that could mean almost anything. But then once we actually do a bit of a workout, the classic presenting complaints would be respiratory infections in snakes, especially with so many people keeping so many ball pythons and boas in fairly close quarters. Bearded dragons with reproductive disease, specifically female bearded dragons with reproductive disease. And then I can't tell you how many leopard geckos with eye disease I've seen. I couldn't believe it. When I, I was breeding and keeping leopard geckos, so I had 20 or 30 of them at some point, I didn't have any with any eye disease. And now at work, I see probably one per day we've got a leopard gecko with something wrong with its eye. It's usually a combination of like duck shed, cystitis, and then maybe some vitamin lax as well, like vitamin A. Awesome. And what do you think is, I, you said, what, what, like what's causing it, but what, what do you think keepers can do better to prevent those yeah. eye problems? I think that fortunately, if you're spending the time to watch a podcast like this with, and you're investing that much of your life into kind of reptile keeping and learning about them, you probably know most of it. Generally, the biggest thing, one of my pet peeves is people not knowing the temperatures of their cage. It's so important to check the temperature accurately, like a digital thermometer or a temperature gun. Making sure those temperatures are okay is gonna solve almost all of the issues that I see realistically. A few other things like humidity as well, and then UVB lighting, I'd recommend it for everybody. Big thing awesome. would be temperature and then proper diet and stuff. Awesome, so in general, I guess what you're saying in general, it's usually the husbandry that's causing all the, yeah, all the problems? almost exclusively. Not exclusively, <laughs> but that kind of ties into how I work up most sick reptiles. First appointment, unless they're very sick, if we've got major evidence of septicemia or they're really not doing well, they're very skinny, they're very dehydrated, I say, here's your pamphlet. We'll write down a few other specific things that the pamphlet doesn't cover. Do all of these things, make the changes, give it a week or two, and then tell me if things are still going on. Most of the time when they come in and it's kind of a person with their first reptile, first time they've ever seen it off normal, it's too cold. If we raise the temperature up, see how they're doing, they almost always perk up again. If they don't perk up again, then it gets a bit more interesting, medically speaking, and I look into the workup of some x-rays or blood work or that kind of thing. That's that's very interesting. Um, I work at a pet store, and one of the yeah. most common things is, oh, my ball python or oh, my leopard gecko is eating. <laughs> And yeah. when it comes down to it, it's, it's usually increased temperature and, and it usually works. So I think it kind of ties into like they don't really do a whole lot. If you look at a dog, it plays and it runs around and you can see its facial expressions a little bit. Reptiles don't do many of those things. They'll be moving and walking and then eating, essentially defecating, I guess, as well. Right. Yeah. No, that, that definitely makes sense. Um, cool. Uh, so actually, before we move on, there's another thing you mentioned there. Uh, reproductive disease in dragons. Mm. What is that? Yeah. I mean, it kind of, most people would think about it like egg binding. Okay. So I break it down into two major categories. 
true egg binding where a bearded dragon has developed a bunch of eggs. They have shells on them. They're ready to go, but they're stuck somewhere. They're just not being able to be laid. Usually in that case, they're in the reproductive tract. They're very close to the exit. You can almost see them if you were to like look in there. So that would be one case. And then another is more follicular stasis. It's classic in like veiled chameleons as well. Almost every female veiled chameleon that I've seen ends up with follicular stasis at some point in life. Very common for them. With true egg binding, where the eggs are almost laid, we give them a little bit of extra calcium and then they can often lay them on their own. Kind of like dogs and cats in dystocia, where they, they need a lot of resources to produce those eggs and then they need a bunch more calcium for their muscles to work properly and to actually push them out. And if they deplete their stores or if they're cold or something else is going on, then they can kind of pause. And then if they pause, they can run into issues where they, they lose the momentum of the uterine tract or they don't have the calcium to actually push it through. And then in the worst cases, if they're stuck for a while, those eggs can get stuck inside the reproductive tract. They can kind of scar to the area and then they can't come out on their own. We need to surgically take them out. So for those cases, we take an x-ray, if it looks like they're shelled eggs ready to go, give them an injection of calcium, make sure there's a big lay box ready for them at home, give them some privacy, again, make sure it's warm, give them a couple days, and if they're doing well, ideally they push them out. If they don't push them out, then we talk about either surgery or repeating that same kind of process, depending on what the owners are seeing. Contrast that to the follicular stasis. So they've got, most of these reptiles, they have, Two ovaries, just like a mammal would. And then the ovaries can kind of develop eggs or the, the follicles can progress and they'll get bigger and bigger over time until eventually they leave the ovary and that's where they become the eggs eventually. Sometimes those follicles can get bigger and bigger and then kind of pause. And that's the follicular stasis. In those cases, they're not coming out on their own. They're not ready. They're not anywhere close to being ready. Sometimes we can have the eggs or the follicles developing and then they stop and then they resorb and then that the lizard gets the nutrients back. That's why we see many female lizards out there never lay any eggs, even though they're developing follicles. And if I were to do an ultrasound every day, I'd see the follicles getting bigger and bigger until eventually they're getting smaller and smaller. Sometimes they don't go the other way. They get bigger and bigger and then they get stuck there or in a follicular stasis. And then it's really a surgical condition. So in those cases, we do an ultrasound, measure the follicles, have them back in a couple weeks or so, measure them again, repeat that. And depending on how the animal's doing, if it's clinically not doing well, like not eating quiet or all the usual things, at that point, we often recommend the surgery as well. Interesting. Very interesting. Does, is this something that's commonly seen? Sorry? Oh, it gets pretty complicated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it sounds like it does for sure. And and also, like, I'm, I'm sure this is something we'll touch on later, but surgery on such a small animal can't yeah. be easy anyway. Yeah, um, very tricky. Yeah, for sure. Uh, is this something that naturally occurs in the wild or is it only seen in captivity? Yeah, I think that's a, a great question. I assume that it does. I mean, it's tough to say with certainty. I don't know if people are going out there and doing postmortems on animals right after they've passed away from this kind of thing. But knowing what we do about people and a long time ago, the mortality rate for mothers giving birth was extremely high. I think it's probably ha happening as well in the wild for the reptiles. A few things though, they can kind of make it a little bit less likely. They can find higher temperatures if they need to. They'll always have whatever they're looking for in their nesting box. And they're kind of more privacy in certain circumstances as well. So I think it's happening, but there are a few circumstances in captivity that might make it more likely to happen in certain cases. Interesting. Okay. And is it, um, is it something, is there something that like we can do to reduce the likelihood of, of yeah, that? I mean, it'll be a bit of a broken record, but, Make sure you measure your temperatures frequently. Make sure they're warm enough. Make sure we're supplementing frequently. Lots of calcium, especially in females in the springtime. Most of the reptiles, anyway, that people keep will start developing those eggs in the springtime. Around me, it's like February or so. I would start increasing the, the calcium that we're giving them and then appropriate UVB lighting and a nesting box. That's particularly important for chameleons because a lot of the time there's nothing on the cage floor. People will just have a small pot you give them a little box for the, for the lizard to lay in or a bearded dragon that's on slate or something like that, making sure there's somewhere for them to go if it seems like they're progressing that way or they're at risk for laying eggs. 
Right, because if they're not finding anywhere to lay their eggs, they're just going to hold on to them longer and start causing Yeah, them. a lot of the time they hold on to them. Sometimes there is a big surprise and people find like a bunch of random eggs in the enclosure and thankfully the lizard laid it on their own. But in other cases, they're kind of searching around and they don't find anywhere. And maybe other things are a little bit off as well. And that's where they end up holding on to them and getting stuck in there. Since we're on the topic of increasing calcium and like sort of mm. supplementation, uh, maybe we could jump to metabolic bone disease or MBD. Yeah, metabolic bone disease, MBD, more accurately called nutritional secondary hyperparathyroidism, NSHP, but we can just call it metabolic bone disease. I fortunately don't see it very often because I think there's so much info out there right now. Like 20 years ago, we knew about MBD. We knew mostly why it happened and how to stop it as well. So now when somebody says, my lizard looks like this, my turtle looks like this, a thousand articles come up about metabolic bone disease. And then when they're doing some research beforehand, they can typically find some ways to prevent it. I do see it sometimes though, particularly in rescue cases. If we have a good Samaritan who's found some animal on Kijiji or the internet, they've adopted that animal essentially in private home. Sometimes the previous owner wasn't taking very good care of it. And then the new owner knows right away that it's got metabolic bone disease, some signs of that. And then they would bring it to the clinic and we would treat it. Awesome. And and I know it's probably more complicated than I'm about to like simplify it down, but it's essentially a lack of calcium in the bones. Yeah, there are many different ways. So most obvious one is the animal is not being given calcium. If they're not being supplemented at all with calcium and they're getting certain food items like crickets or other things that don't have a whole lot of calcium in there, then there's not enough calcium in the body and then they can't put it into the bones and a few other things happen. Can also be because they're not getting enough UVB light. The UVB light helps convert the calcium into usable calcium, the true D3 that the body uses for the rest of the things. And it can promote the uptake of calcium from the diet. So if they're not getting enough UVB, they'll be at risk for low calcium in their blood and then low calcium in their bones. And then, unfortunately, there's a third category that we don't often talk about, which is related to the kidneys. There's a whole process and pathway involved, but the kidneys help to convert the calcium into more usable calcium for the body. So if the kidneys aren't working very well, they might not be able to convert that calcium. So I've seen a handful of lizards come in with obvious signs of metabolic bone disease, but then they say, I don't know what's going on. I give it all this calcium. I change my calcium supplements. I've got UVB lighting, spent all this money on making sure that everything is great, but the animal still gets metabolic bone disease, perhaps because it has some kind of kidney disease. And that can be like related to age, where the animal's just gotten older and the kidneys aren't working as well, just like in people and cats famously. Could be related to dehydration, some other husbandry things, but there's a bunch of different ways you can get metabolic bone disease. Interesting. Is it also something that can come from over-supplementing? Yeah, so we, there's always concern for hypervitaminosis D3. It's tricky to diagnose, for one. We can theoretically check the blood work for certain levels. I've never personally done it. And then the clinical signs can be pretty vague as well. For that reason, I don't recommend as much D3 supplementation as I know a lot of people out there are doing. If we give them the UVB light, they should be able to turn regular calcium into vitamin D3. That's one of the ideas behind it. If you don't give them vitamin, if you don't give a, a reptile UVB, theoretically, it may be possible to give them the exact right amount of vitamin D3 to be healthy and, and not develop metabolic bone disease. I think some people do that with like day geckos as an example, but it's really tricky to get that much calcium into them. You have to know like eating it, and then we can't overdo it. We overdo it. I don't know if I've truly diagnosed it before, so it doesn't happen all that often. But again, it's difficult to diagnose. But kind of circling back again, if we give them regular calcium, a bit of D3, but not really focusing on the calcium with D3 every feeding, then we give them the UVB light. The UVB light can do the work and give the reptile D3 in the end. But there's a negative feedback loop in there. So the body will say, I don't need to make any more D3 if it's using the D, if it's using the UVB to do that. Very complicated again. We do see over supplementation, but I don't think it's as often as, as a lot of keepers are worried about, especially if we focus on calcium without the D3. 
Okay, cool. Uh, what what about I asked you like over supplementation? What about like over UVB? Like is is, is too much UVB yeah. harmful? Again, I've never seen like a UVB burn or that kind of thing. I was trying to find some cases of it a few years ago. I think when they first came out with those compact fluorescent bulbs that provided UVB, there were some issues with the eyes of certain animals, potentially burns. I've never seen it in that aspect. And because there's that negative feedback loop, we don't see hypervitaminosis D3 after giving UVB. So I give it to all of my animals, even the frogs that are in the dense jungle. I'll put a little caveat there, make sure there's places for them to hide in the shade. And I don't put like a 16% on a, an animal that's gonna be in the, the jungle, for example. But I think it's very difficult to overdo it with UVB. And I think almost everybody out there is underutilizing UVB. All pythons maybe don't need it. It's like the one example where we've done some research about it, but everything else I would probably give it to. And I'm sure if you gave it to the ball python, they'd probably benefit from yeah. it as well. Interesting. Uh, done. You've done or, or they've done? No, just they have, the, there's some okay. research out there. I think the, the corn snake paper kind of turned everything on its head. Historically, most people thought snakes don't need UVB at all. They don't benefit from it. They can make their own. They get enough calcium from their whole prey. They did a paper on corn snakes, and they found that there were higher levels of calcium in corn snakes that were given UVB. They're definitely doing something with the UVB. Then they did that paper on ball pythons as well, and they didn't find the same thing. Ball pythons don't seem to be using it, which is why I'd be comfortable enough not providing it. Although in a perfect world, it probably would, because the snake can choose to do what it wants to do. Yeah, 100%. And, and I want to ask you a couple of questions about giving the UVB to the dark frogs, but I'm going to leave that till the yeah. end. We'll get to it. Um, that's actually, you brought up a, a very good point there. Um, they're, they're eating whole prey, the snakes, rather than like insectivores. Yeah. So is, is it more common? Uh, is it more common to see UVB in like an insectivore than it is in um, like a, something that's eating a small mammal or something? Yeah. I mean, we almost never see metabolic bone disease or evidence of that in snakes, things that are fed whole prey items versus we see it pretty commonly in poorly kept lizards. So the UVB I think is a lot more important for the lizards because in captivity, what we're giving them is relatively low in calcium. Nowadays with people using a lot of the bioactive setups with the little isopods, they've got way more calcium in a ratio than other animals. So I think that kind of mimics in the wild. In the wild, the animals would be eating a whole bunch of different stuff versus in captivity, they're really just getting crickets and maybe a few different kinds of mealworms or superworms and that kind of thing. And the calcium levels are way lower. Yeah. I always used to wonder if, if uh, my animals were actually getting the isopods and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, after I got the emerald tree skinks, you watch them hunt and you actually yeah. see them pick up everything. So it's, it's I've really never cool. seen mine eat them. No? You have emerald tree Hopefully skinks? They do, but... Pardon? You have emerald tree skinks? No, or sorry. I've never seen any of my animals eat the isopods. Okay, yeah. I did have tree skinks for about a month. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I've never seen it either, like in any of them, no crusties and, and none of the other stuff. But the emerald tree skink are like actively hunting all day. Yeah. Um, so you'll see them like just suddenly grab something off the ground and be like, I haven't fed you yet. How are you? <laughs> How are you eating? Yeah. Yeah. So it's they're definitely picking them up. Uh, but that, that's very cool. I'm surprised actually that, uh, that you're saying, well, happily surprised uh, that you're saying you're not seeing MBD as much as, as you used to. Um, yeah. It seems like, and, and maybe this is just the perspective being on the Facebook groups, but it seems like that's the biggest thing that all keepers are worried about or seeing or yeah. um, the most talked about problem, I guess. It may be more common outside of the veterinary clinic as well. Generalizing a little bit, a lot, okay. I guess. But if you're willing to spend the money to bring a reptile to the vet, you've probably done a fair amount of research beforehand as well. You've done a fair amount of research beforehand, you're unlikely to develop MBD in your animals because you probably done those few things that you can do to prevent it. So it may be more common out there that I'm not seeing, but fortunately I don't see it as one of my main things. Another thing you touched on was RI in snakes. Um, mm -hmm. That's uh, another thing that I fairly I hear very commonly about. And I generally hear that it's like over humidity or too much, they're spraying yeah. the snake too often. I don't know if that really makes sense, but yeah. What, what, what do you think? Uh, I mean, I think it's probably part of the play. One, again, Always temperature, I worry about if they're too cold, they're essentially immunosuppressed. And then no matter what pathogens are out there, they're more likely to get sick. We see some opportunistic infections where we've got just regular bacteria on the skin or in the nose or in the lungs of snakes. 
And then if they're too cold, that bacteria can kind of have a heyday, reproduce a whole bunch, and then we can get clinical signs in a snake. And then other times we see it as like viral diseases and that sort of thing. I'm a lot more worried about those animals and we're seeing them a lot more nowadays because people just have so many snakes. Often you've got like a hundred or a thousand ball pythons in one or two rooms. There's so many animals in close quarters, we're just way more likely to end up with a, an infection. It's really difficult to fully quarantine a snake or to be 100% sure that when you get a snake that it's completely free of disease. One, they don't show a lot of clinical signs most of the time. And then two, it can be very slow. So they could be at the very beginning of their disease, put in with your snakes, and then everybody's so close together, you're touching the snakes one after another, can kind of spread everywhere. There was a paper done, I can't find it now, but something like if you have more than 10 snakes, there's a very high chance you've got some kind of viral disease in there, just endemic within your population. And I've seen quite a few very complicated, very sad, expensive cases where we have hundreds of thousands of snakes, and a huge proportion of them end up with these respiratory signs, even though the owners are doing as much as they possibly can for husbandry and temperature and that kind of thing. Awesome. Do you, do you ever hear about, um, I, I don't know if what the correct term for it is, but I know it as a Nido virus. Yeah. And I think Mike Titula keeps telling me it's serpentivirus now. I've always called it Nido virus. It's been always on the radar and I have to talk about it a lot, especially with these cases where we have many snakes with respiratory or other signs. Until this year, I have not been able to diagnose it because we just didn't have the test. Most of the snakes we're worried about are ball pythons, which are technically cites, and it's a huge hassle to try to send samples to be tested. We didn't have anywhere in Canada that could do the testing for it, so it had to go to Florida. Because that's international, we had to do a bunch of cites paperwork to get the stupid little sample of saliva over the border, and that would take a few months, which snakes sometimes don't have, maybe cost 500 plus dollars, so it wasn't feasible for many people. Just now, we've been able to kind of organize something through a lab where we're finally able to diagnose it. And so I would strongly suggest if any snake keepers have a bunch of snakes with some kind of clinical signs, to look into that as one of the possible explanations for why they're sick. And now we can actually do something about it. Beforehand, if I couldn't do anything about it, I'd say, it's very possible you have some kind of viral disease in here. My antivirals don't really work very well for snakes, so we would try to treat secondary bacterial infections with your classic medications, quarantine everybody, make sure you're not selling or buying anything new. But it was frustrating to not have a real diagnosis. Yeah, and and now if you were to diagnose this, are you able to cure it, or is it something that's not that's really curable? Part of why I didn't look into it as much before, treatment-wise, I don't have any real medication for it. Mm -hmm. The most important benefit would be for quarantining your snakes and then other snakes buying and selling and that kind of thing. Sometimes it gets a bit Messy. frustrating for me as the vet because a client will say, well, if I don't, if I have nidovirus, I don't want to know about it because then I can't sell my snakes to anybody. Obviously, I don't recommend that kind of thing. We want to lock it down and maybe just keep it as a nidovirus positive population, take in snakes that have nidovirus, for example, but it's tricky because there's not a lot of treatment options. It's really just quarantining them and maybe treating for secondary bacterial infections. Yeah, I'm 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 not even sh like shocked that you hear that sentence. By the way, I'm I'm more than I'm more than sure that there are people that are aware that it's in and won't say anything yeah. and, and sell their animals. Ignorance um, is sorry, sorry. Uh, ignorance is bliss. Yeah, people. ignorance is bliss. Exactly. No, hundred uh, percent. Sorry, what did you say? Uh, Mike Toitula called it. <laughs> he calls it certain serpentivirus i think he's right but i haven't personally looked I, into it recently i did hear that on the herpet herpeticulture podcast um yeah. they did they were talking about about it being named that now so that does that definitely makes sense um cool uh so so one, one thing you said in there was um usually it's super early on or or it's too late um, so this is something that seems to be a case with reptiles, uh, you know, yeah. either it's it's no symptoms early on or once you see the symptoms, it's too late kind of thing. So, um, yeah, is there a way to see symptoms early on or for the yeah. for nidovirus and pentivirus, that kind of thing? If you had a, a serious collection and you were sure that you were free from nidovirus or pentivirus, you had a bunch of snakes that were really looking good. What I would recommend is doing a sample of any snakes before you get them. 
or if you get them, keeping them in some off-site facility, taking a sample, making sure that's negative before adding them to the actual collection. If you see a snake with obvious clinical signs like mucus in the mouth, breathing changes, diarrhea, even for some other things, then I would just not do it if you have a bunch of snakes. And I mean, it can be catastrophic for that kind of thing. And then when they're, yeah, they often, so snakes will present fairly late in, in any kind of disease, all reptiles will. Yeah. It takes them a long time to get sick and then often takes them a long time to get better again as well. Depending on how sick they are, we can sometimes do things about it because we have a bit more forgiveness. I think septicemia is a great example of that. If we saw a dog or a cat with septicemia, they're very sick and they're at risk of dying almost any time. If we have a snake like that, we often treat them as an outpatient where we see the snake, we say, this is pretty sick, but we can still often treat them, give them some antibiotics, make sure their husbandry is okay, send them home. They've got a little bit more flexibility in recovering from it, even though they're presenting so sick. So yeah, they often do come very sick, but it doesn't mean that we can't fix them. Parasites. Is something mm-hmm. um, as a mountain dragon keeper, I worry about and I hear about very yeah. often. Um, what's your opinion on parasites, first of all? Yeah, it's that one is fairly controversial as well. So, if I have, if I do a fecal on a reptile, ninety percent of the time I'll find something in there. If you do a fecal yeah. on a dog or a cat, basically zero percent of the time you'll see something in there. Wow. Many of those things that I find in a reptile, I don't care a whole lot about pinworms or retortomotus or blastocystis, the common ones that we see, we don't really think cause any disease in reptiles. We're not 100% sure, at least the literature isn't, but we don't expect so. So if I have a lizard come in that's totally fine at home, they're just doing a routine fecal, I do a fecal, I find those bugs on there, I don't recommend treatment. I say, watch for clinical signs. If it's sick for some reason, let me know, and we might want to look into this again, but I don't necessarily treat. On the other hand, there are a few parasites out there where if I see even one of them in a certain animal, I'll treat it. Coccidia in bearded dragons is a big one. Some other things like lungworm in snakes, we would want to treat right away. So I recommend fecals mostly for those bugs or if we have a clinically unwell animal. If I have a lizard come in with diarrhea or it's constipated or it's not eating and we find one of those bugs that we don't typically think of as being important, I often recommend treating it for them as well brings us a little bit to something that people often ask me outside of work is can i just treat these things at home sometimes you can and many people are successful with it especially if you've got experience and know how to do the math and that kind of thing but it's definitely possible to overdo it with panicure particularly in our small animals if people say oh i just gave my drop it was a tiny dose that can still be like 100 times more than what it needs to be for this tiny little bug tiny little frog for example they're designed for dogs and cats and people, which are thousands of times heavier than a lot of our reptiles. So I would always recommend having them seen by a vet before doing those parasite treatments. Unless you've got a really good relationship with a vet already and they say, here's some panicure and this is how you dose it for some of the other animals if I haven't seen them in person. Interesting. Very, very interesting. So, so deworming can potentially be more harmful than the worms? Potentially, it's very low risk. So if we do the math, if a vet or a professional is saying, this is how much we want to give, it's very unlikely to cause disease. It can cause some disease, though. Maybe more importantly, is it really going to do any good? Potentially not for many of the bugs out there. And especially with pinworms, it's pretty much impossible we're going to get rid of them. So what's the point in treating them if they're not causing disease? Treatment is a small chance of causing disease. And we're going to be in the same position we are two weeks from now, anyway. Yeah, and I wonder if to treat them. yeah, yeah. I wonder if 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 they're they're not only like not bad, like not harmful, but also maybe useful to them. Yeah, that's a very good question. I think pinworms were looked into specifically, and some people out there definitely think that. I'm not aware of any true evidence to say yeah this is the case, but it's theoretically possible for sure. Cool. Yeah. Uh, awesome. Okay. And then uh, not really on parasites, but, but something, um, actually you, you mentioned this was a frequently asked question and I definitely hear it very frequently. Um, can I get salmonella from my reptile? Right. <laughs> yeah. And depending on who you talk to, some people are extremely worried about it. I know Scott Weiss at the Ontario Veterinary College where I went to school, 
he's like very much against keeping reptiles, at least that was my interpretation, because sometimes people do get salmonella from reptiles. I think there are a few cases where I would be cautious about it. And this is all very anecdotal, so take it as that. But I certainly have not gotten salmonella from my reptiles. I'm not aware of any people who have. I know it's out there and it's happening because we do the studies on it. But in my at least personal experience, it isn't happening very often. Where I would be cautious is pregnant women. I don't really let any of my pregnant technicians do my reptile appointments with me just in case there's some kind of salmonella. People on chemotherapy or immunosuppressive drugs, I wouldn't recommend that they touch or hang out with any reptiles. And then very young people, like under five, under a three or so, I wouldn't really be interacting with reptiles, mostly touching them. Probably going to be okay if they do. I'm sure many of us, when I was three, I was probably hanging out with reptiles, but there is definitely a risk there. If you wash your hands right afterward, if you're careful about not touching your face, that will lessen the risk further. So there's a risk there. Fairly low in general, but I think everybody should be aware of it. Yeah. Is is um, is washing your hands still effective? And this is not just on salmonella, just in general. Is washing your hands still effective between different species if you have all the species, like sort of like I do, where it's all in one rack yeah. lined up next to each other? I mean, it depends on the pathogen. Some pathogens out there are very good at hiding from the, the soap or the water, and most people don't wash their hands for that long. But I mean, it can help. Yeah. yeah, it should help quite a bit. Okay, awesome. Yeah. Um, okay, and then maybe going back to um, some of uh, uh, more on the on the. I guess I I don't even know if this would be considered the breeding animal or just animal in general. Do you see prolapses very often? Yeah, very very common. Okay. Doing a lot of emergency work, and I think we're the only clinic in like most of Ontario, half of Ontario at least, that sees exotics after hours. We get a lot of the reptile calls. Prolapse is like one of the few reptile emergencies. Many vets or vet staff out there say a little bit facetiously that there are no reptile emergencies. That's not quite true, but it's almost true. Prolapse is the obvious one. If we have a bleeding animal, if it's having seizures, or if it looks like it's about to die or is dead, then we would want to see them after hours. Prolapses themselves can be a bunch of different things. We would see a lot of reproductive tract and animals trying to lay eggs or give birth. We see a lot of like hemipenes, especially in lychees. They seem to be prone to them. And then sometimes gastrointestinal tract as well. Sometimes owners can manage it at home. If they watch the prolapse come out, for example, often with just some like sterile or KY gel with none of the other strange things in there, you can push the prolapse back in and it might be fine, especially if it's very short term like that. Other times it might come out and maybe you come home and there's a prolapse to one of your reptiles and you can't quite push it back in. You can try one of those sugar baths. The idea is that the sugar in the water that the prolapse is sitting in will draw some of the fluid out of the prolapse, kind of decrease the size of it, so then you can push it back in. But other times it's more serious and there's no way that's gonna help. And so if you have a prolapse and you're not experienced, you haven't ever talked to a veteran professional, I would recommend bringing them in on emergency. And then we would typically do those same things. Try to push it back in, sometimes do the sugar bath. And then sometimes we put stitches in the vent as well, presuming it's coming from the vent. You try to keep it in there as the body heals and maybe forms scar tissue, keeps the structure where it needs to be. Interesting. Uh, so yeah, it, I, I also hear about it being very, very common. Is there something that is that we're doing that is causing it or is it something that we can yeah. do to prevent it or is it just yeah. it's going to happen? I mean, number one, again, make sure your temperatures are right. <laughs> your cold is likely to come out. Number two, make sure your supplements are okay, especially females. If it's a reproductive prolapse, if they're not able to pass the eggs, often it's because they don't have enough calcium in their diet, generally speaking. And then sometimes it can just be kind of random luck. Like animals will prolapse in the wild as well, particularly if we're breeding them a lot more than they would be in the wild. You can have a hemipene come out, for example, or some kind of other reproductive tract. So making sure your husbandry is good, making sure there are lay boxes available. And then sometimes the routine fecal testing as well for parasites. So if we have a GI prolapse, that could be because there's some kind of parasite in the GI tract that's kind of making it more difficult for them to push out. They've got a whole bunch of pinworms, for example. I think there is thought that that might be causing or increase the risk for prolapse while defecating. Interesting. Uh, can diet 
affect um, at all? Yeah, absolutely. And I think uh, related to that hydration as well, if they're dehydrated, they're more likely to be constipated and then more likely to be prolapsed. So if we have a bearded dragon fed mealworms, like small mealworms, not superworms, there's just so much of the chitin in there that it's difficult for them to, to pass it out sometimes. And that can bunch up and cause constipation and prolapse. Diet low in calcium, again, we talked about. And then if they're not getting enough water intake, they can be constipated there. Interesting. Uh, yeah, so it's funny you brought up chitin because that's um, the Cruzio Hyla Craspidopus yeah. that came in a couple of months ago and everyone was not doing yeah. it. Unfortunately, one of the things that I'm hearing is the constant co uh, prolapses, constant prolapses, and apparently the people that were slowly taking them off uh, crickets and back onto fruit flies um, yeah. were experiencing it less often. Um, yeah, possible. I, I, yeah, I, I don't know. So many of these frogs died at various stages, it seems like they were doing great and then all of a sudden they die or they're doing great and they prolapse and then a couple of days later they die. I'm very curious as to what's going on. I would love to find out. Could be related to the diet, but I know some of them are dying without ever prolapsing. I suspect maybe related to like general development if they weren't getting enough calcium or something as they were a little tadpole or even a little egg. Maybe that was contributing things. I'm not sure how they were done originally but it could definitely be the chitin. Another thing that, that you mentioned um, you get asked frequently is um, why did my snake suddenly die? Yeah. <laughs> so we don't always there... know, but yeah. there are a few things that I always think about. Respiratory infections, like we talked about, are pretty common in snakes. And some people, especially inexperienced donors with maybe just the one snake, don't know what signs to look for. Or they're just not watching enough to find them. So if we have a respiratory infection in a snake, because they're white blood cells, so the, the cells that fight infection, they don't abscess the same way that other animals, mammals do. It's not liquidy, it's very thick. Sometimes we can get a bunch of mucus and abscess material like that inside the lung or the lungs of the snake. And it can be sitting in there for a long time, weeks or months even. And then eventually a snake moves around or kind of coughs almost, but they can't really cough. That mucus can lodge itself in the trachea and then the animal essentially can't breathe and they pass away. So I think that's always one thing that I would be wondering about if your snake suddenly seems to pass away, especially if there were any signs of respiratory illness before then. And then sometimes with like low calcium levels or that kind of thing, if we had kidney disease, something like that going on, we are seeing a fair amount of neurological disease like nowadays, potentially related to all of the, the selective breeding that we're doing. Spider ball pythons being the classic example, minor head wobble, probably not a big deal for the snake in the long run, but they were more at risk. Or because we're doing so much selective or inbreeding, we may be having brain issues in the snake. And if we have a seizure, there's a chance of dying pretty much any time. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's very interesting. Do you think that um, if we were, if anyone's like, People, for people that are line breathing, um, what do you think is the best way to prevent some of those morphological problems? I mean, to not line breathe. It's not, <laughs> yeah, if there is an answer. To yeah. diversify the gene pool as much as we can, but that's like the opposite of what they're trying to do. So choosing the healthiest looking animals is a good idea. That's one of the reasons I'm not really into that kind of thing at this point in my reptile keeping career. Mostly into the wild type and that sort of thing diversifying as much as you can would be my short answer if you're set on line breeding <laughs> yeah no that, that's i think that's the only probably the only way to continuously bring in like a wild type yeah. strengthen the gene pool and then start again kind of thing awesome okay so are you down to do like a quick fire round yeah for sure i have a bunch of listener questions here yeah. and obviously like like take your time answering them everything but i'm just gonna kind of go like they're not gonna be in the same order as like the questions aren't going to be in order. They're not going to make sense, but they're just a bunch of questions from the listeners. Awesome. Okay. Ready? <laughs> yeah. Um, so what is the hardest surgery to perform? My hardest surgery is probably something orthopedic because it's very different, but in our reptiles, anytime you open the loma cavity, like the abdominal cavity, it's very tricky because they're just so small. You need special instruments, and then special training, so that kind of thing. So if we theoretically maybe like a resection and anastomosis of the GI tract of a 
small reptile would be something very difficult. That's where we take out a piece of the small intestine or colon or something like that, and then we attach the two ends together. I don't know if we could do that realistically in many small animals because we just don't have stitches small enough. We could probably order them in, but that would be very hard. What do you do when a gecko loses its tail? Is there anything that you should do? Keep it clean, like something like yeah. that? Depending on the gecko, probably not a whole lot. If it looks very dirty at the tip, I might just gently wipe it with some kind of damp cloth, that kind of thing. Flush it with either tap water or saline if you have that, and then let it do its thing. They're designed to do that, basically, so I don't really worry about it at all. Cool. I guess um, figuring out why it happened would be a good idea. Unless there was some kind of obvious trauma, then I wouldn't do anything, but if it just seemed to fall off, then we'd look into that. Yeah, makes sense. Um, so this is something we sort of covered before, but maybe I'll just ask it anyway. How does how do you spot signs of a disease before any serious complications, if there are any to spot? Yeah, keeping logs would probably be a good idea, so that you know exactly how often the animal's eating, how often it's defecating, and if those things seem to be changing. And then keeping track of your temperatures too, so you can make sure that there are no correlations there. If it gets cooler, they get quieter. Maybe not a big deal, but if it's getting warmer and the animal's getting quieter. Maybe that could be something. So watching frequently, writing down what you're seeing, probably what I'd recommend. Cool. I, I'm going to add the question for myself there. Um, on the topic of keeping logs, it's something I'm always interested in. Mm. Do you feed or do you recommend feeding on a schedule? Or do you think that kind of like randomized feeding is better or does it not matter? I don't feed on a schedule, mostly because of my lifestyle. So I don't know yeah. exactly when I'll be working and when I'll be able to feed. Sure. I think it's probably okay to do either. I would say... Many people overfeed, and I would really avoid that. Almost every bearded dragon I see is incredibly fat and overweight. So skipping days is a very good idea, even for some of the animals where people think that they don't need to skip any days. Otherwise, though, I think you're totally fine. Whatever works for you on a schedule or not on a schedule, you may be more likely to see animals or certain animals if you feed on a schedule, because they'll get used to that. Darn frogs being the obvious example. If every day you feed at 4 o'clock, 4 o'clock will probably be sitting at the glass waiting for that food. Many people enjoy that aspect. Yeah, I yeah, hundred percent. And the days where you don't feed, um, if you like, let's say the four o'clock example, the days you don't feed, they're out of four o'clock waiting anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, dart frogs are awesome. And for those of you waiting, we will get into them in like two seconds. <laughs> um, cool. Okay, so this was actually a question that was asked a number of times. Um, so I kind of just took all the questions and made it like one question. Uh, actually, before that, it's gonna be a, a, qu a quick one. Do you know any good vets in Nova Scotia? <laughs> Nova Scotia, I don't think I do. No, I okay. think that's probably because people in Nova Scotia would likely go to the vet school in PEI, so I wouldn't have met them in the Ontario school. Okay. Fortunately, not. I think there's a website that you can look into that'll say, Where is the closest reptile vet to me? Although I don't think I'm on that list right now. <laughs> You're not? Oldland. I don't think so. Okay. The, the question I was talking about that a bunch of people asked that I, I kind of sh made it one big question. Uh, it's sort of like, there, what steps do you need to become a vet if, if like for people interested in becoming one? Yeah, long story short, it's really just good grades. That's really the, the most important part to get in. In high school, doing lots of science, you need all of your science, essentially calculus, all of your math as well. So pretty crappy classes. And then I would definitely go to a university that's associated with a vet school. I imagine many people would be Ontario. If you're in Ontario, definitely go to University of Guelph. And I say that because most of the people going to OVC come from the University of Guelph. And so there are a lot of resources available in addition to your coursework that can help you apply. It's also way easier to convert those classes over. You know exactly which classes work, and which classes the OVC will accept as prerequisites, and which classes won't. You can do it from other classes or other schools, but it's a lot more difficult. So go to a school associated with a vet school and then do whatever you can to get good grades. <laughs> whatever you can, but get good grades. You need other things as well, like volunteer stuff and experience in the field, that kind of thing. But it's such a small aspect of what they look at to get into school. Really just focus on getting good grades. So I don't recommend anybody has a part-time job while in university anyway. Just get your grades as high as you can. And then in the summers, see if you can get that extra experience of in a clinic or doing something vet related. Yeah. Study, study, study. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, yeah, 100%. Uh, it, it, you said OVS uh, a couple of times in there. Is that Ontario Veterinary? Yeah, OVC, Ontario Veterinary. 
Oh, VC, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Ontario Veterinary College. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yes. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Um, okay. Um, the final get the final like follower question is going to lead us in towards our frog conversation. That's why I left it till now. Um, so how does a wild frog obtain uh, vitamin A if they cannot convert carotenoids into vitamin A? Vitamin yeah, a. so I guess it, the question comes from the idea that many of the supplements that have vitamin A in them that we give to reptiles, we can't give to frogs because they cannot convert that beta carotene into the vitamin A that they need to survive. In the wild, though, they would just be eating animals with vitamin A already, so they don't need to worry about that beta carotene. In captivity, because we're probably only giving them one real source of it, if that source isn't adequate, then we can see them pass away and get a bunch of issues from it. So it just comes down to in the wild, they eat a, a huge variety of different things and they get the nutrients in that way. Yeah. And that's something with dart frogs that I'm always like looking into, like what alternatives do we have to fruit flies? Yeah. What are some other things we can do? And then yeah. even once it comes down to fruit flies, how much can we switch up the um, the media we're breeding them on to kind of increase yeah. the nutrition of the flies, but it's it's definitely interesting. Uh, so so, uh, is there a supplement that you recommend that doesn't have the beta carotene that like maybe you use or that? The, yeah. So I honestly I think I got it from Mark Mark Pepper from Understory Enterprises, but I use the Rapashi products. I believe it's called Vitamin A Plus, something like that. The the dark frog one, and then the Supervite as well by them. I alternate weekends, so twice a month I'll give both of those. I think you're probably okay to do once a month for both of them as well. And then on every other feeding, I do calcium plus. You do do calcium plus? Yeah, for the frog. And for, so, so you don't think that you're giving them too much vitamin D? Um... I don't think so, not with these guys, because the okay. it's all anecdotal. We haven't done any formal research as far as I understand. But everybody keeping frogs in a high capacity is giving calcium plus on all of those frogs. We don't really know how much UVB is related and, and how frogs are metabolizing calcium. So we don't know if that's helping them a whole lot. I think it probably is. And I'm giving all my frogs UVB. But on the frogs, I do the, the calcium plus. But on most reptiles, I do just calcium with the D3. And then multivitamin and vitamin A and that kind of thing will have D3 in it. Interesting. I well, first of all, I those are the exact same supplements I use in the same yeah. Uh, yeah. same, right. same schedule. Yeah, like yeah. I'll do twice a month vitamin A, twice a month uh, Supervite, yeah. and then everything else is calcium plus. But I don't give my frogs UVB, um, and that's so. First of all, I was worried about close proximity, and second of all, mm -hmm. we worry about it becoming too hot. Um, so yeah. maybe could you run us through how you how you do it and. Is it, are you leaving it on all day or is it sort of a couple I, of hour thing that turns off? Or, yeah. Very good question. I currently have a sun blaster with a, an LED bulb in it and a sun blaster with a UVB. I think it's the 5% by Arcadia and that's it on all my dart frogs. I have both of those lights on for about 12 hours a day. I've heard that many people do the UVB for like four hours a day. I think in Europe, they're doing it for like one hour a week or something very weird like that. And I've heard wow. some places like Wakiri uses the like desert UVB bulb, but just for an hour a day or an hour a week or something strange like that. Wow. I have the UVB meter, the solar meter, and I check through the whole cage. Nowhere is it above a two, which is relatively low. And there are so many areas where it's zero because there's so much shade from all the plants. I'm very confident that they're not going to be burned by any UVB. Again, I think it's very rare, even if I had no plants in there, if they would be burned by it. I've heard there are some studies about tadpoles, though. And if the tadpole is in this one little cup of water very close to the UVB, potentially that could overdo things. So we might have to reevaluate there. But realistically, it's a pretty low amount that I'm giving and that I would recommend giving. But again, looking back, people have been keeping dart frogs for decades. Nobody using UVB until very recently, so they can survive. It's tough to say if it will benefit from them or if it will benefit them. Yeah, I think until very recently, it was almost like, uh, don't do it kind of thing. Yeah. Right. Like it was, yeah. Uh, how, how do you, how, like, um, I have glass tops on all my frog yeah. tanks, so UVB won't go through it anyway. How do you kind of, how do you do that? Yeah, so I always have a, a bit of ventilation on the top of the cage, and I stick the UV right on top of that ventilation. 
you did bring up heat and that's very important. If it's going to yeah. be too hot and wherever you have the frogs to add another bulb, I would definitely prioritize keeping it cool enough. My place, it's very cool in the basement. So I like that extra heat actually, but that's something to keep in mind. But yeah, make sure it's over that mesh or some kind of ventilation on the top. I think that they do benefit from the airflow as well, like many of the plants that we're keeping in there do. Yeah. Oh, that's so that's a big thing. Uh, even if they're not benefiting because of the lack of airflow and the lack of ventilation, which is something I'm working on currently changing tank by tank, yeah. um, you don't get the beautiful setups that you want with a dart frog because after like a month, two months, three months, algae starts developing on everything. Yeah. Um, which and then and also it's harder for, for the moisture exchange and, and all that. Um, which brings us to my next question. Um, I've heard of if you oversaturate sphagnum moss or the substrate they're on, they can get kind of fungal uh, problems with their uh, yeah, heat. Or like. Yeah. So how, how are, are like, I don't know if, if there's an answer to this question, but why does that happen? And um, is there any way to prevent it other than obviously better husbandry and keeping yeah. it drier? I mean, it happens because like the chronic moisture on the ground can make their skin a little bit weaker, more permeable. Think about like dogs with ear infections. If they get a bunch of moisture in their ear, the bacteria can kind of live in there more easily. So if we have a wet ground, the skin of the frog is more easily penetrated by the bacteria. And also we can have more bacteria living in that ground, like the anaerobes that people are often worried about. They can be living in amongst all the, the oxygen-free soil. I think most people probably keep frogs too wet in general, but the major Prevention would be lots of leaf litter and that sort of thing. Generally, what it seems like people are recommending is lots of leaves on the ground and they should dry out within a couple hours of misting every day. So we shouldn't have them standing on wet leaves all day. Make sure there's yeah. somewhere that's dry for them to go whenever they want. Yeah, I think the best the best line I heard, um, I don't remember who said it, but it's frogs like it, humid, not wet. Yeah, um, that kind of thing. Yeah, no, I asked that question because I've seen a few frogs that um, unfortunately weren't kept in the best mm -hmm. husbandry, um, kind of like bringing them out of those situation things. But it almost seemed like their legs were, um, and I don't know if this was from caused from the same thing, but looking into this tank, the sp sphagnum moss was like almost water. Um, yeah. Their legs were almost like balloons, like they were um, enlarged balloons. So I was wondering if like yeah. not osmosis, but somehow the, the yeah, water was entering their legs and. I expect the bacteria is, is getting in there. And I know with shipping, some people see that if the frogs on a wet piece of paper towel or moss for a couple of days, the bacteria can sneak in. Treatment wise, if we find that, I like Silvazorb. It's like a, a topical antibiotic that you can put on the feet, very safe for them. You're not gonna absorb a whole bunch of it, get sick from that. And if there's bacteria or fungus even, or a bunch of other stuff, it can help treat it. And then making sure you've got some kind of more dry area for them to recover in. Awesome. And is that the same stuff they use with uh, bloat? With, pardon? Uh, bloat. Oh, with bloat. Yeah. Yeah, bloat's tricky. Okay. Most frogs that bloat don't make it. I had one that I got, one of my first frogs a long time ago, bloated, and then I used some antibiotics and some like frog ringer solution, amphibian ringer solution. They seem to recover and lived another few years or so. But bloat often happens with Septicemia, so that would be one example. The bacteria, septicemia is like when bacteria gets into the bloodstream, that can change the, the concentration of the blood almost, and that can cause fluid to more likely pull into the frog. Because the frog's skin is permeable, they can often lose or gain fluid while they're sitting in it. But if the concentration of the frog changes, then water might think, oh, I need to move into the frog even though the frog's full of water already. So we see it bloat up. So we need to treat why the fluid was developing in there in the first place, which is maybe antibiotics or that kind of thing. And then also give them a space where it's not really watery and they won't develop a bunch of bloat. So what I usually do is like a batrial antibiotic, which is a true same thing you'd use in a dog or a cat or another animal, just like a drop on their back, essentially doing the math about it and diluting the batrial as we need to. And then often the amphibian rigor solution, which is designed to pull water out of it, out of the frog. It's like the appropriate concentration. Uh, that's the ringer solution? Yeah, amphibian ringer solution. Kind of similar to like saline that we would give dogs and cats either in an IV line or subcutaneously, the pocket under the skin. Yeah, that's very interesting. Um, 
uh, Houston Frogs. I don't know if you're familiar or the original mm-hmm. Houston Frogs um, breeder in the in the states. I guess he's not even breeding anymore at this point. He's um, he's just redistributing, but he has he's working with a bunch of cool stuff, and he does these emergency frog. I think, uh, yeah, packs. I yeah, think I have seen those, and that was a lot of the stuff that they had in there. I don't imagine they have Batril in there. That's okay. a true prescription that you would need. But the amphibian ringer solution and the silva, very difficult to go wrong with. So I'd say it's an appropriate thing for people to be doing without seeing a vet, unless there are major concerns. Awesome. Awesome. That's, that's very cool. Do you ever see anybody bringing in dart frogs? I, I've seen a few tree frogs. I don't think anybody's brought in dart frogs. It's just my own that I brought in. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, awesome. I have one more question for you. If you were a reptile, what would you be? Which reptile? I don't know. I'd probably hope for something long-lived, I think. <laughs> yeah. And then Something not a prey? <laughs> yeah, something in the jungle. Maybe like a caiman lizard I would want to be. I don't know if that would match my personality a whole lot. But if I could choose, that's probably what I would choose. They, they are awesome. I, that, that is a very good choice. Um, that actually is also a question that came from uh, somebody on Instagram, by the way. I just yeah. left it in uh, to kind of end it, end it on, a, on a bit of a funny note. Dr. Brown, uh, thank you so, so much for, for coming on, for doing this. Uh, that was a lot of really, really good information. Yeah. I need to, I, I'm probably going to rehear it all while I edit it anyway, but I am sure I'm going to go back and rehear the episode again when it comes out because it's just these things you, they, those are the kind of things that get you thinking on how to hopefully better your husbandry. Yeah, Um, thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun. I I think that's kind of the philosophy that I'm undergoing right now is many things that we're doing will help reptiles and they can live, we think, long lives in captivity, but there are some other things that we can really improve on. How long do leopard geckos live in the wild? How long could we get them to be living in captivity? I've heard some people say up to 50 years. I've never seen that, of course. Maybe about wow. 20 years. Are there things that we can change that can improve their quality of life and their longevity? Yeah. Uh, there's actually somebody that comes to the store I work at that has a leopard gecko that's 22 years old now. Yeah. So it's, I've seen it, a couple yeah. of 20, 23, I think, is maybe the oldest. Wow. Okay. Bearded dragon is 16. And I've seen a red-eared slider at 36. What's the oldest red-eared slider that you've seen? Um, so the Canadian fish vet um has had some since he said he was young um but he's he's fairly young still so i think maybe in like 20 20 years 25 years something like that yeah some people are telling me they could be 80 like tortoises but i don't know i've only seen 20 to 30s 36 is the oldest by six years okay sorry sorry what would you would you how many 36 is the oldest red-eared slider that i've seen by six years everything else is 30 or below 30 or below. Okay. Maybe that's just because yeah. we've kept them for 40 years in captivity. They just aren't around that long yet. <laughs> that long. Yeah. hundred percent. I wonder if, if anybody's um, tracking them in the wild, but I, I don't yeah. imagine that they're, they're the research is being done on ready sliders rather than some other yeah. species. I think. Um, Stabbing turtles are a hundred, but I think painted turtles are more like 20 to 30, even less than that. I'd compare it's actually something to. we didn't even touch on at all. Do you see turtles frequently? Yeah, and I don't like to. <laughs> it's very difficult to keep a turtle in captivity in Ontario. Tortoises specifically, it's so sad every time you get this sulcata tortoise. It's like three grams, not three grams, but 30 grams. The person's talking to me and they say, I live in an apartment. What are you doing with this 200-pound tortoise that's coming to the apartment? And then they need such high humidity and temperature and an enormous space. So I don't think anybody should really be keeping tortoises in Canada unless you've got a facility. Turtles are easier, but touching on longevity, it's tough to find a person who wants a tortoise or turtle for 30 plus years. You have no idea what your life's going to be like in 30 years. Plus, they're so big and there's so much work that people often get sick of them. So, don't like seeing turtles in captivity for that reason. A little bit similar, they're really good at surviving, even though they're not thriving. So, you can see a turtle that's 10 years old, it looks like crap. The owners have said, well, I've had him for 10 years. What could I be doing wrong? He would have died before now. No, he's, they can just survive through almost everything. So I've got to try to convince them that they did make a bunch of mistakes to try to get this turtle feeling better, even though I know that they're probably not going to improve on a lot of those mistakes. Many turtle appointments are very sad, so I don't like to. Some, though, people are very invested. We got them when they were eight years old, and they love them still at 38 years old, and those are fun appointments. 
Yeah. Uh, are you seeing a lot more of the Egyptian tortoises now? I don't know. Uh, I mean, we see some of the red, red foot tortoises, salicatas, and then a few like European, but not really a lot. Those small guys could be reasonable, but again, like 50 years, I think we had a Greek tortoise that was 49 or something and just started laying eggs like two years before I saw it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's, that's way too long. And, and like yeah. you said, you don't even know where you're going to be in like 10 years, yeah. let alone 30, 40. Can you let everyone know where they can find you? Yeah. So I'm on Instagram at LIGOWILL, L-Y-G-O-W-I-L-L. And then I work at Campus Estates Animal Hospital in Guelph. You can just call the regular number. If you have a question, we can make an appointment for that. And then I have a website as well, but that'll be on the Instagram. So I think we're changing the URL right now. Awesome. I will put all those in the show notes. Okay. If you can guys go find them. Um, Dr. Alec, once again, thank you very much for doing this. I'm sure I will have a lot more questions very soon. <laughs> so maybe we can do a round two. Yeah, um, Daffy's Reptiles on all social media platforms. Daffy's Roundtable for the podcast. Thank you all for watching and we'll see you on the next one. Awesome. Thanks a lot. Awesome.